Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and Bill Bryson-style travelogues of the howling dystopian wasteland. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, who recently became the fourth person to officially understand the Schleifig-Holstein question. Congratulations. I hope it ends better, better for you. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in prosecutor. Ratings actually really matter, so please take five seconds and give us all the stars you possibly can. All the stars. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by our friend and fellow Truman Project member, Caitlin Howarth. Uh, Caitlin manages the Early Warning Systems Program at the Signal Program on Human Security and Technology at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. She's also the co-founder and CEO of Allinor Consulting, a woman-owned business building startups for social impact worldwide. Uh, she's a D.C. native. She has an awesome dog. And she is going to talk to us uh, about a story that hasn't been getting as much attention as it really deserves, which is the widespread ransomware attack uh, that, uh, that occurred uh, last week. And we at Taking Ship had nothing to do with that. Um, but we know you come to Taking Ship for breaking news, especially when you're going to be listening to this six months from now. So here's some steaming hot fresh news. Fresh off getting his ass handed to him by, in the octagon by Frank Spring, Jason and Chaffetz. And I do it again. I do it again. Come out and face me, Chaffetz. Jason Chaffetz is reportedly resigning after his Willis Reed-like comeback to vote for the repeal of Obamacare. He must have realized that his wounds were far too gratuitous to continue on with his life in Congress and will now be put out to pasture, presumably with a new show on Fox News. Yes, don't let the door hit you on the way out, Chaffetz. I'll be here. <laughs> uh, so let us also so. Goodbye, Jason Chaffetz. Uh, let's, we hope to never see your like again. Let's talk about the uh, three things that we're not going to discuss this week. Three things we are not going to talk about. Yeah, we will definitely not be talking about Trump's mental condition. No, we are, we are absolutely not talking about Trump's mental condition. In an unprecedented moment in taking ship history, I actually have oh – God, I hate saying these words. I actually have something sort of nice to say about David Brooks. Uh, contain your, your, your shock. Uh, he actually got off a pretty nice turn of phrase uh, recently in a, a column about Donald Trump. It was a, a largely, in fact, I would argue wholly unoriginal column about entirely, entirely unoriginal column about Trump's mental state, essentially calling him a child, which, yes, correct. Uh, but uh, but he got off a pretty nice line that I wanted to draw people's attentions to, attention to, which is we shouldn't look for patterns in Trump's thinking because his men, Trump's mental process is six fireflies in an empty jar lighting up at random. So reflect on that. I occasionally have nice things to say about David Brooks. I'm looking forward to going back to hating on him. Uh, we are. What else are we not talking about? We are not doing counterfactuals of if Hillary were president or when Obama was president. Yeah, don't get, don't get us wrong. Counterfactuals are a very useful exercise, particularly when you're trying to game things out. But when you've already definitively determined that the other side has no shame in terms of hypocrisy, it becomes yet another thing that you can howl at the wind or the moon, depending what you'd like, and have absolutely no impact on anything other than riling yourself up. Like, for instance, one of my favorite things to go after, Bernie Sanders is still not a member of the Democratic Party. And Indeed. Ellie often howls that at the moon, and, and we see what good it's done us. Very, very little good. But speaking of hypocrisy, uh, another thing we're not going to be talking about 
Yeah, unless and until someone actually votes or really does anything, please quit uh, your adoration. And I, I mean this not necessarily to our listeners, but this is a broader message uh, to media, to Twitter users, to the entire world. Humanity, really. To humanity. It's a broader message, which includes some uh, some of our of our modest listenership. Uh, please uh, stop the adoration of McCain, Graham, Ben Sass, anyone who goes on television, anyone who takes to Twitter, anyone who writes stern letters, any of the any particularly Senate Republicans who say things about how deeply concerned they are, but are not actually proposing to do anything about it. Uh, it is just enormously undignified to heap praise on these people, and we, we fairly implore you to stop. Yeah, my personal favorite that we will also not discuss was uh, Bob Corker when he said downward spiral. Somehow that was like headlines. Downward yeah. spiral. Sure. Yeah, these are people who have voted entirely with his agenda, and as far as we can tell, are likely to do so for the foreseeable future. Until something actually changes, uh, they're, they are coasting on talking tough and doing not a damn thing, and we should be smart enough to uh, not fall for it. Yeah. Uh, for f- further information, please go back and listen to our alt-centrism uh, episode. Uh, but you know, speaking of people who need to vote on something, if there actually is something, uh, the Washington Post had an article uh, earlier in this week where they counted out that there are 101 members of Congress right now who were in office, either in Congress or in the Senate, who voted to impeach President Clinton. But we're not going to be discussing that and how that might need to impact their thinking now, considering that Clinton was impeached. Uh, one, of the, one of the articles of impeachment was about obstruction of justice. Indeed, we will certainly not be discussing that. And frankly, I think that we can really pat ourselves on the, on the back and be grateful that we uh, spared ourselves the agony of discussing any of those deeply distressing subjects. Yeah, I think it shows a sign of maturity. Yeah, I think that's very reasonable of us. We are nothing if not magnanimous and people of good judgment. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of magnanimity, alas, Roger Ailes, we hardly knew ye. And what we did know was terrible and really fucking disturbing. Uh, in in accordance with uh, Rod, the late Roger Ailes' desire, uh, desires, uh, or in our desires for him, uh, Roger Ailes will be buried at sea. Uh, he'll be buried at sea so that there can be no uh, earthly location of his remains where his various adherents can go and pay homage and it can serve as a kind of focal point for aspiring Bill Riley's the world round uh, to turn up and, and, uh, you know, and, and presumably uh, find new and awful ways to treat women. So uh, he will be buried at sea. And uh, I have here the uh, common book of prayer uh, from the, uh, you know, our, which is our, 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 uh, the official taking ship uh, book that we turn to uh, in moments of crisis uh, and also uh, moments of, of kind of crisis and celebration uh, to commit uh, Roger Ailes to the briny deep. And so I am, I'm looking it over here. Um, it's a long prayer. Uh, it's about the good that the person did, commending that person's soul to God. But since Roger Ailes did not recognize skip some of that, yeah. greater than himself, I think we're going to let that one go. Uh, man is born of woman and his life is full of misery. It certainly was full of misery for other people, uh, but I'm not quite sure that right. That's right. He cometh up like a flower. Roger Ailes did not cometh up like a flower. I'm skipping this part here. Uh, okay, we're getting, boy, uh, we're getting to the bottom here. Uh, therefore commit his body to the deep to be turned into corruption. His body is already corrupt. This is not going to work. Someone just shove him in the drink. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing I'll add to that is, uh, George H.W. Bush, who is nothing if not a gentleman, uh, his tweet about Roger Ailes' passing was, he wasn't perfect, 
But Roger Ailes was my friend, and I loved him. Not sure I would have been president without his great talent, loyal help, R.I.P. I just love the fact that he starts off with, with, with he wasn't perfect. <laughs> that is truly, like, honestly, like, that is, for, that is the, probably the greatest condemnation that could possibly have been issued. Without his help, I would not have been president. That is correct. Yeah. You, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. friends, I wish to take a moment. This is a good time to remind all of you that again, until there's a substantive change in the world, we uh, at Taking Ship and uh, and all of our listeners uh, remain the owned, the trolled, and the furious. That's us. There's uh, yeah. it'll be the tenth um, in the series of Fast and Furious movies, but there will be the no, owned, the there will be no cars. <laughs> That's exactly. There'll be no trolls. There'll be yeah. There'll be no. There'll be no cars. There'll be no. Uh, you know. There will be no heroics. There'll be no big action set pieces. It's just us with our faces and our hands going. Oh God. Yeah. We're so furious and so owned. Yeah. 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 So you somewhere, know, with, Bill O'Reilly is wearing an iron chain around his waist for the rest of his life to remind him of his, of his role in his spiritual father's demise. Yeah, and you can only assume that Ann Coulter will figure out a way to haunt the. Uh, graveyard wherever roger ailes is buried and somewhere somehow donald trump is probably just thinking hmm, if only roger had exercised less no it's a shame yeah mm-hmm. speaking of exercise our erstwhile vice president uh leslie nielsen stand-in and potential witness to corruption cases mike pence has just exercised his right to start his very own pack uh registered to the observ- to the observatory um, so at least one Republican is kind of hedging his bets. Um, it's, it is unusual for a sitting vice president in the first term, at least, to found his own PAC. But he's an unusual man, and I've been told that we are living in unusual times. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is deeply uncommon for a, a vice president to have their own political committee uh, during the first term of, uh, you know, of office. But indeed, these are unusual times. And I, I'm sure it is simply a coincidence that he founded this uh, at the same time that the good ship Trump appears to have sprung up a pretty significant leak. Uh, and it might be uh, for those inside, it might have, for those inside the good ship Trump, it might appear that it's raining upwards uh, and the uh, and, and get and it's beginning to swill about their knees. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just you know simple coincidence on that one. Uh, but uh, Mike Pence uh, is not the only one who's ready to take a stand. We here at Taking Ship are tired of well, I, I got to tell you, we're as mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore. We're we are we're we're sick of this crap. We're tired of one-sided coverage. We're tired of the witch hunts, of the fake news, of the liberal and the Republican establishment elites rush to judgment. Yeah, you really need to hear both sides, and that's why we are officially starting. Venal Pack, the official committee of our brand new pro-corruption party. Our motto, if you can't beat them, join them. We'll bring you periodic updates from our continuing mission to grease the wheels of American democracy itself. Yes, and here's a pro tip. The squeaky ones don't always get the grease, if you take my meaning. Uh, We'll also share news from the front in the war on the war on corruption. Today's bulletin from the war on the war on corruption we call on all patriots to rally around Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn. Who, it transpires, appears to have stymied a coordinated attack on the ISIL capital of Raqqa because his benefactors... Please, please. His very good friends. Right, benefactors friends. is such a gauche term. His good friends in the Turkish government were against it. 
Uh, yes. So if you really need to think about what happened, he may have saved lives and potentially ended other ones. Who's to say whose were saved, whose were lost? But Mike Flynn took a stand. Yes, he did. And that's and that the thing is, that's just good old school corruption right there. I mean, yeah. you know, I doubt the Brits during the height of empire could have done as well, because the truth about corruption is any fly by night greaseball can collect can just collect a sack of cash. But subverting a coordinated international military operation is the kind of just solid old school belt and braces corruption that really makes a country great. And you know, my only concern in all of this is that uh, he did it for less than a million dollars, which I have to say is stretching the concept of value for service a little far, Michael. A little far. Yeah. Uh, you know, got to think really about the got rest. Got to think about the rest of us. We've got we've got bottom lines to make here. So, uh, you know, but but we'll you know we'll give him a pass on this one. Yeah, it seems like they got a really you know good bang for the buck on that one, or lack of bang for the buck, I guess. Right. Yes. Yeah. Quite so. <laughs> Now, a friend of the podcast has written some talking points about these very revelations, and he writes, quote, You may hear, Flynn is a good man and a patriot who is being smeared by the deep state holdovers still bitter about his service in the Obama administration and as part of a larger effort to harm President Trump. Yes. You may hear that. You may hear that. Our friend then goes on to take what can only be described as a distressingly and, and disappointingly contrary view uh, and, and says some things about, about Michael Flynn that, frankly, will not we don't need to repeat here because never mind all of that. You may very well hear all of that stuff, and I'll tell you where you'll hear it from. You'll hear it from us. Michael Flynn is a shining example of commitment to public corruption, and we will not hear him slandered. You are all of you on notice. Yeah, and that is the update for the week on the war on the war on corruption. Get on board or get out of our way. Speaking of corruption and people doing, doing the wrong thing, uh, I wanted to bring up a couple quick topics. Uh, one that has kind of been on my mind a lot lately is we are witnessing a group of Republicans and theoretically responsible adults who are totally fine standing on the sidelines and watching the demise of the republic in favor of tax cuts and deregulation. That is literally yes. what is happening. Yes, that is entirely what is happening. And it's worth keeping in mind because as each fresh outrage pours out of, uh, out of the White House, and they, they, I mean, they're compounding themselves and sort of reaching a kind of logarithmic effect where someone in the White House will do something, or usually Trump, or it will be revealed that they've done something. And then the attempt to deal with that creates an entirely new shitstorm. And it just, again, like these, you know, the scandals are compounding logarithmically. It is easy for a reasonable person to look at uh, at Republicans in the administration and the uh, legislature and think, you know, sooner or later, they have to do something. And that is true. And that sooner or later is exactly when it endangers their it significantly endangers their reelection and their likelihood of pushing through their agenda of tax cuts and, regu- and deregulation, and not a moment before. Yeah, and you saw some of this kind of coming to play yesterday a little bit. You saw a few more people bringing up the impeachment word, uh, talking about how they were troubled by what was going on. Meanwhile, the stock market was crashing, and I'm sure that there was not a, co- a connection between that. The stock market was crashing because investors are freaked out that Trump's not going to be able to get through his tax cuts and, and deregulation. That's why the stock market has been on such a boom. So obviously it's going to crash when they don't think that's going to happen any longer, which means that the Republicans, whose sole purpose of existence at this point is to push through tax cuts and deregulation, suddenly don't need them anymore. 
One ball to keep an eye on in all of this, and there's there's really it's going to be hard to track this except through uh, leaks and process stories until the the, the quarterly reports start coming in. It's yeah, worth keeping. Thank God we're getting a minute by minute explanation of leaks and process stories coming out of this White House. That's that, that's precisely it. Uh, if uh, one one ball to keep an eye on is going to be uh, the behavior of Republican donors, who I suspect will largely stay in line for the same reasons: tax cuts and deregulations. Uh, but it's possible that they may have sensitivities to uh, <clears throat> a little light treason, or they perhaps may themselves be corrupted uh, by this vile strain of anti-corruption that we've that we've just uh, been railing against. Uh, and and they may be they may begin to turn their attention and their support elsewhere. I wouldn't bet on it, but it's a it's a a ball to keep an eye on uh, as we track uh, exactly what the point of uh, exactly what, when we hit the point where Republicans in the legislature decide to actually do something about this uh, this administration, if indeed they ever get there. Yeah, and you know while these Republican donors are looking to keep corruption going, we could humbly recommend they drop us a couple dimes at Venal Pack. Mm-hmm. Indeed, we are <laughs> every uh, regulators, law enforcement officials do not listen to this. Republican donors, hello. <laughs> you get pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not good pizza, oh. but you get pizza. You get some. Yeah, you get like DC pizza. Recol- no, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but speaking of kind of the Republicans really not doing anything because there's still potential that they're going to get their tax cuts and deregulations. In my mind, and this is something that I've been saying, you know, well before the inauguration was, I just assumed that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan had articles of impeachment drafted and sitting in a desk drawer somewhere because obviously they want Mike Pence. So if that's yeah. the case, if Pence is everything that they've ever wanted, from homophobia to you know, Indiana to guy who looks like he walked out of a movie screen and got, you know, the silver plated hair on top to not dining with women that aren't his wife. I mean, it's everything that they've ever wanted. Why aren't they pushing to get rid of Trump? It seems, I mean, here's the thing. Yes. Yeah. If, if they had to choose, of course they would choose Pence over Trump. I mean, I mean, that's not even a, that's not even a contest. The challenge is, and there's a very, there's just a difficult political reality here, which is the it is materially impossible, I would argue, for the party of an actually honest to God impeached president, particularly one who is impeached for uh, something other than uh, the reasons that that uh, Clinton's impeachment uh, proceedings began. It's materially impossible for a president impeached for issues up to and relating to treason uh, to win a, a to win another election. Uh, I mean, I think that you basically have to there's there is a life cycle, I would argue. Uh, I mean, you know, we say this. I mean, Nixon resigned, uh, and his party suffered very seriously. And then they came mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. Uh, six years. They came back uh, six years later and and won a crush and won a significant victory. So under Ronald Reagan, but it is unreasonable to expect. And I think this is probably the calculus that if the Republican Party were to move, the legislative Republicans were to move against Trump uh, in favor of getting their boy Pence in, that either that they would be able to win a midterm. Or uh, that they would be, uh, or, or that they would be able to win the 2020 presidential election. Uh, it's just, it, and I and I suspect that they, if they do end up moving against Trump, which again we just talked about, like what what it would take to get there, uh, they would certainly at least want to see through the eight, the 2018 midterms before they move in that direction. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, I would think that the push would be for him to resign before an impeachment process even started. That doesn't necessarily put you in a better position electorally, but it certainly looks better. 
um, sure. if somebody is the adult that does it. I think part of the problem now is that we're seeing that it's entirely possible that Mike Pence uh, was involved in some not so great things. You know, these reports that uh, the administration knew about Flynn's um, uh, conversations with the Russians and the Turks and all that before, uh, even before the inauguration, Mike Pence was in charge of the transition. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's exactly. Yeah, he, Pence, he was he was a player in it all. Yeah, so you can't really begin proceedings against Trump uh, without potentially implicating Pence and you know and potentially gutting the entire uh, you know, the entire Republican leadership. <laughs> Although, then you do get either. President Paul Ryan or President Orrin Hatch. Yeah, which is, I mean, look, you know, those are those are all very sexy words. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, if you're, uh, I mean, ultimately, right, like the, the whole thing is, at this point, you're really very, you're like, you are really venturing outside of your ability to control what happens next. I mean, if you're, you know, this, it is such a cataclysmic event to have an impeachment proceeding that actually takes and results in someone's impeachment or their resignation. And then potentially reaches down into the in, farther into the administration itself. I mean, the idea that the party that was responsible for that would be able to push through a, a, a kind of a legislative agenda, it, it, it you know, it taxes belief. I mean, it's not impossible, but but it seems unlikely. It is far better to, I think, do what they are doing right now, which is to just wait and see if this whole thing can blow over. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, to be fair, I mean, Reagan was president when. Uh, his administration sold missiles, uh, you know, sold missiles to the Iranians. So it wasn't like, you know, and he came through almost completely unscathed, although it was a closer and closer and thing in some ways. Uh, so it's not like there isn't a precedent, a precedent for people being able to, for presidents being able to, uh, to weather some, you know, some pretty dark times. And there are some very obvious fall guys around Trump that I suspect will get it in the neck before he does. Uh, you know, including our, you know, the in, including you know the great patriot uh, and and pro corruption advocate Michael Flynn. Yeah. So I think they're they're probably so clearly what is happening here is they're just wait they're waiting to they're just going to wait this thing out. Yeah, and if anything, the uh, you know uh, um, the. Uh, the special pros- the special prosecutor coming up yesterday with uh, Mueller becoming the special prosecutor if anything is just going to slow everything down to a halt and i imagine the former fbi director is not going to be quick to leak or speak to the press and this is going to become a very closed box for a very long period of time yes i, th- I think that's a very reasonable prediction that this is this could be about to go this is about to go very dark indeed yeah i would say that there's pretty much only one thing we can be certain of and that is donald trump will never resign he would sooner jump on a treadmill and exercise himself to death than resign. Yes, that's that's exactly it. Run, really, run down that battery until he gives out. Jesus, uh, that's God, I love that a president of the United States has a kind of medieval view of science. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely terrific. You know, it's you know, you know, I'm sure he drinks Diet Coke because he thinks it rectifies the humors. Uh, but in any case, it, it, wait, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't rectify the humors. <laughs> I've been swilling this stuff. Oh God, my heart palpitations. It's making them worse. Uh, yeah. So uh, that seems about right. The only way I could conceive that he would do it is if he somehow came to the idea that he would look better, that people would think of him as a remarkable hero and would laud right. him more if he were to resign, uh, which is not impossible because again, six fireflies in a, in a jar, you know, lighting up at random. But that, that given the fact that he took the opportunity at the uh, Coast Guard uh, Academy's uh, commencement speech yesterday to harangue them on how he has been treated terribly unfairly. It feels like he's more unfairly than any politician in history. And I, I assume that includes, you know, Lincoln, who got shot in the head, Caesar, yeah. who got stabbed by most of the Senate. That's and, exactly. you know, 
Yeah, was it was it the emperor? Which was it Vitellius? I might have the pronunciation wrong. Who was uh, who was seized, but who attempting to surrender his emperorship was, or had, who had surrendered his emperor, and then rather than being allowed to retire into public life, was essentially beaten to death, beaten and stabbed to death by an angry mob in the streets of Rome, and then thrown into the river, and then fetched out and beheaded in his in his both his head and his carcass, paraded around the streets of Rome. That, that seems is, fair. That's not. That's exactly right. That's not. That, but the thing is, it was fair. That's exactly right. It was harsh, but it was fair as opposed to what's happening to Donald Trump. Yeah. Or, or you know, this, Hamilton. Or Hamilton that didn't work out. Or indeed, as compared to say the travails of someone like Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Um, but but never mind that now. Yeah. So he's clearly in a in a I am you know in, a, in holding on to this role because it's going to validate him and vindicate his his own greatness. Right. Everybody's going to love him, and his father will love him. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. You know, before we kind of wrap this up, so we agree impeachment really isn't in the cards unless the Democrats win the House back in 2018, which I put the chances up very narrowly. But there's one thing I do want to ask you about is what kind of impact are we going to see on everything that's playing out in these special elections in Montana and Georgia? And can we actually forecast 2018 based on those? That's a great question. Uh, I'm a little more. First, I just should say I'm a little more bullish on retaking the House uh, than uh, than you are. Uh, but but yeah, how, what is the Monta- What are the Montana and the Georgia special elections tell us about this? Uh, you know, there is some utility. It, it is it is possible to get a bit of a sense of the. Kind of the mood, of, the, you know, the mood of voters. Again, these are very specific constituencies. Uh, the those two seats are not are vacant because both because uh, the because the uh, the people who held them uh, were appointed to positions in the Trump administration. Uh, they were appoint, they were not appointed to positions in the Trump administration because uh, they are you know moderate Republicans who you know are bipartisan can reach across the aisle. They were appointed because they're effectively right wing ideologues. They come from districts that would elect out right wing ideologues. Uh, so all of that is worth keeping in mind when we say. I would caution against reading too much into what happens in either of them either way. Uh, but if, you know, if, if either of them should be won by the Democratic candidate, uh, it is it would suggest that in these very in these very Republican districts, although especially the one in Georgia has been uh, trending slightly bluer over time demographically and then in its presidential election results, although they were incredibly in love with Tom Price and remained in support of him uh, right through to his to his uh, appointment as uh, as Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services. It's it, it, there. It, if a Democrat is able to win either of them, it may suggest that there is a kind of winning frame that the voters are are really in a in an anti-Trump mood, uh, and that would I, I would that would support the broad thesis uh, that Democrats are working on right now, which is uh, twenty eighteen is going to be a referendum on Trump. We're just going to run against Trump, and nothing else matters. Yeah. Yeah, that's all fair. Uh, I, I would recommend to our listeners, they may enjoy listening to uh, the Politico off-message podcast from this past week with uh, Rahm Emanuel. Um, and for about 10, 15 minutes, he discusses some uh, you know, current-day political kind of strategy. Um, and you know, if Dems listen to Rahm more frequently, things might be a little bit different right now. But he makes a very interesting point. He says that basically there's three different kind of constituencies. There's an urban constituency, a rural constituency, and a suburban constituency. Democrats have conquered the urban, Republicans have conquered the rural, and it's sort of the suburbs that are making up the difference of which way any specific district or congressional district or um, um, uh, um, electoral seat, electoral vote goes. Um, And his point is in that uh, the Democrats have done a pretty poor job of finding 
the right candidates to run in the right suburbs, that they reflect democratic values more so than they reflect um, that specific constituency in that district's um, values. And that's just something to kind of keep in mind and think about as um, people start talking about running for Congress or any of our, you know, six or seven listeners get approached to work on a race or something like that. Sure. Exactly. And I think that, that there may be, and this is not a shot at, the, at this candidate individual, individually, there's an argument to be made that Ossoff, uh, the Democratic candidate in Georgia, might might be, you know, could be considered uh, a product of a system that doesn't necessarily match up its candidates with yeah. its constituents with its constituencies all that well. Uh, there's an argument to be made. There's certainly Republicans who are making that argument vigorously. I don't know how much credibility I give it. Uh, whatever else may or may not be said, that I don't think is really a legitimate argument to be made about the Montana race. No. Uh, I mean, Quist is. I mean, that you know, he is. You know, he is Montana. You know, he is the. He is certainly progressive Montana to the very, very core. Uh, and and I think a reasonably good representative of uh, you know of kind of how. Uh, you know, Montana is a strange state. Uh, Very strange it, state. It, it's, it elects Democrats. It elects Republicans. Uh, people there uh, talk about doing both as a way, of, as a deliberate way of creating checks and balances, which is sort of unusual. Uh, but he is Whitefish, you know, Montana, which is a beautiful town in which my dream house is located. I only unfortunately found out far afterwards that it is also one of the hubs of the alt right. Yes. Yeah. It's so. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So you know, it's it's a it's a mixed bag. Uh, I would say that the Montana, I, you know, I mean, uh, you know, something. If the Montana race turned, this is the really, this is the the indic, this is the key one here. I would say the Georgia one is a coin flip right now. If you just kind of look at the way things have gone, yeah. uh, which is really saying a lot, actually. If by some miracle the Montana race is won, there's no way to look at that. Ex- there's no way that 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 the Montana race comes back uh, uh, for the Democratic candidate Quist, except. Um, that the rural constitu- that that uh, either there's very low rural turnout and very high you know quote unquote urban turnout. Montana does have you know a couple of modest sized cities, uh, or more likely that there is a turn in the kind of exurban vote against Republicans. Yeah, uh, which which would indicate I you know I think actually fairly see a, which more than likely would be part of a national phenomenon. So the Montana one is the one where if the Democrat wins it, it probably will say something uh, much more important nationally. And that leaves open the question of why Democrats aren't paying quite as much attention to the Montana race as they are with the Georgia race in terms of volunteer work and money and sure. And, and some some of it, I think, is just the polling. I mean, the Georgia race has been you know has been close for a very has, you know has been close basically the whole time. Uh, it is now the most expensive house race in the history of house races. Yeah, uh, you know, thirty million dollars doesn't go as far as it used to. Uh, and and Montana, I think, has always seemed like a much steeper hill to climb, which it is. Uh, and it's just you know there for all sorts of reasons it can be. It is a much more practical, in a logistical and political sense. Uh, it is much more. It is easier uh, to run a political operation in an urban suburban area than it is in yep. this giant landmass that is largely rural. Yeah, uh, that is that is Montana. It's just yeah. much harder. So I think that's part of what's happening here as well. The factors, the stuff you can control in an urban or suburban area as a as a politico is is much greater than it is in a rural area. Yeah, it is. All right, we are joined uh, today by uh, our special guest, Caitlin Howarth, uh, who is going to tell us a little bit about a story that, frankly, has not gotten uh, nearly as much attention as it richly deserves because uh, everything in the entire world 
that could possibly happen uh, to the Trump White House is happening to the Trump White House and it's happening simultaneously. So all of the other important events uh, that you really should know about are, in fact, not getting the coverage they deserve. Uh, but yeah, it's, we, Donald, it's Donald Trump's dream. He is ubiquitous. That's exactly right. He is everywhere. The entire world is becoming Donald Trump and Donald Trump's insanity. It's a sort of Lovecraftian kind of event. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, we're going to talk with, uh, we're going to get a little sense of Caitlin, uh, who she is and what she's doing. So, uh, Caitlin, we're going to start you off the way that we always start off. Where are you now and why? Uh, and you can answer that question in any way you like. So, first of all, uh, great to be on the pod. Hi, Ellie, Frank. Dastardly son of a bitch. Nice. Um, I am currently uh, at the Cove co-working space in Eastern Market, DC, uh, which is my home away from home. And I would say, you know, metaphysically, I'm in somewhere between a full-on state of French ennui and just raging hair on fire. Um, lunatic with sort of the energy of that guy who really wants you to know how to get money from the government. Uh, in terms of my passion for correcting all of the insane misinformation out there in the world. Do you so, have one of those suits? That's where I am that would levels. be great. You know, I don't, but I do know where that, that guy lives. He's right. on Bethesda, folks. Keep an eye out. Keep, keep, keep peeled for the next Taking Pod where we get arrested after trying to steal some guy's suit in D.C. So, uh, you know, as Frank mentioned, there's a huge story going on that keeps getting bumped by the White House insanity. Um, this massive cyber hack or ransom or whatever it is, um, we're, Frank and I are both stupid when it comes to this stuff. Basically, all we can do is, you know, surf the internet for stock, stock tips and Twitter and record podcasts. So can you tell us what exactly happened, why it happened, who's it happening to, who's responsible, you know, kind of all the basics. Sure thing. So late breaking news last week uh, going into the weekend was that a hack that had already been theorized um, as being a massive uh, point of insecurity uh, came true. So this was this is what's known as the wanna cry, uh, also known as the um, wanna decrypt or wanna crypt um, hack. And it's a particular type of ransomware that exploited a uh, security weakness, a flaw, in the Windows XP operating system. Now, if you're thinking, gee, Windows XP hasn't existed for a really long time, you're correct. But there's still around, the estimates around uh, 140 million PCs globally still run it. So if you're looking for systems uh, that can be vulnerable, this is still a pretty ripe uh, opportunity. So quick primer. Um, ransomware is essentially uh, you've, you've introduced a vulnerability, um, so sort of like a worm. Uh, the ransomware seeks out different operating systems um, through a global network. This is often spread through various botnets that are, already exist. And the once detecting that your system um, operates this way, so you've so like my laptop has now been uh, touched in some way by the virus. It gets in and it can then take hold of everything because my operating system is the foundation of every single thing that I do on that device. Can we roll it back and ask, so, how, how would this, so you say you're, for, in this example, your laptop has been, has been touched by, uh, by, this, by this ransomware. Uh, how, when you say touched, how would it be introduced to your, to your laptop, to your operating system? What are the sort of common entry points? 
there's a ton of common entry points. Um, so you can think of this, it could be a link that you clicked on. Um, this could actually have been, in a lot of cases, you can actually see, um, particularly for something as viral as, as this attack was, um, you may end up seeing that, uh, especially if you're trying to carry out a large-scale exploit, um, that the system has been vulnerable for quite some time. So uh, I might introduce a virus through something that you clicked on, um, something that you downloaded online. Um, <laughs> sad to say for many of our listeners, uh, but uh, online porn sites, um, any kind of BitTorrent downloading that you're doing, a lot of that can be infected and often is um, because they're all, so anything that you're likely to sort of uh, give like an external source that you're gonna then give access to the rest of your system. All you have to do is be willing to download something um, and this bit of code can be carried in along with it. So while you're getting the latest, you know, uh, you know the latest like video game uh, software that you've bootlegged, you might also be importing this, uh, this virus along with it. And so what it's doing is it's importing the core code that is then going to actually deliver the ransomware attack. So once, for most people, they don't know this has happened until their entire screen, like they open up their computer, the entire screen blacks out, and you get this little system uh, telling you, congratulations, you've been the victim uh, of a ransomware attack. You need to pay us this many dollars in order to get any of your data back. And then we will free up your system and go away. Um, and this particular also, attack had a lot of big institutions, right? It was directed against uh, kind of institutional targets as well as individuals, right? It was. Um, so the national health system in Britain was the most uh, well-known. And the thing about the national health system is that uh, there's a few things that are really playing against it. One, it's a really big bureaucracy that is fundamentally incredibly decentralized when it comes to their software um, and general Second, it, IT. It downloads a huge amount of porn, just a shocking <laughs> amount of porn, <laughs> straight into the NHS. It's mainly a porn downloading service now. Listen, if that's what you need to control your pain, by all means, just keep the opiates away from us. Um, the So the thing with the NHS system is that, you know, they, they actually stopped, they had been paying for a special extended license. So they were essentially paying Microsoft to keep patching the XP system because they knew that so many computers on their network were still running XP instead of upgrading to the most current version of, uh, of Windows operating system. Um, then in then a, a while ago, back in 2015, they stopped paying for it. This was a decision that a small sort of cohort um, within the NHS system had made, essentially saying, look, we've, you know, and it wasn't even that they were going to stop allowing people to get the patches. They simply said, we're no longer going to uh, keep paying for this deal we have with Microsoft to give you a nice discount on that, on that system. So you're, you're now on your own if you want to keep patching this, or you can just upgrade the way you're supposed to do, which makes you more functional, more efficient, and frankly, um, much less vulnerable to things like this. So it was sort of a ploy internally to try and get folks to pony up the time and resources to to get the upgrade done. Um, honestly, I have some sympathy for that move. Um, it seems like it would be effective, but the down the, obviously the result 
is that a lot of folks seem to have said, nah, now we, we really don't want to put that um, those resources into it. And so you have a critical uh, network of health infrastructure going down in a major way, so much so that they actually had doctors and nurses using pen and paper to try and, um, to try and run basic hospital functions. Uh, they had to turn away anything that was non-emergent. And just for a full sense of scope in terms of how bad this is, because your medical records are digital now, you would no longer, like anything that you had, prior surgeries, any allergies, any kind of condition that you would expect would already be noted in your chart, they no longer have access to, um, which isn't too bad if I'm able to tell you what my medical history is when I come in. But if I'm coming in with a gunshot wound, um, or, well, that's less likely in Britain, a stab wound, for example, I might not have a frame of mind to remember my family's medical history or that I had that one surgery five years ago and the anesthesia caused a massive uh, allergic reaction. So uh, you can so see this really you, does, this puts so flags in danger a, in a very You come in way. with a wound sustained as part of a publicly broadcast baking competition and you're, <laughs> you know, you're unconscious, you've just, you know, you're, you're in a diabetic coma. Uh, because your your cake has exploded and and it's insane, your brain is full of sugar and you're not and because these people have so the idea is these people the malefactors behind the ransomware attack have the file you know have these files or have rather have stopped have prevented the hospital from being able to access the files and the hospital doesn't get to access them until they pay them off is that that's the that's the essence of the scheme right that is the essence of the scheme and they can set that price point wherever they want it to be. So your average ransomware um, attack will often be, so for an individual like you, Frank, um, I might ask for anywhere between $300 and $500 to decrypt your system. Um, that's basically, so there's, because there are really broad markets for this, it operates like any other market. That's about the pain point that a lot of um, individuals hit, where I would rather pay than let you wipe my system and have to recreate everything. Um, but for a system like the NHS, this is really valuable stuff. So you can you can raise that uh, number even for individual nodes of the system, of which there are literally dozens, um, for quite a pretty, pretty pretty penny. And then of course have the political fallout of having sure. paid the ransom in the first place. And and so we don't know what this is funding. Yeah, how wide what that's that's an excellent point. And I, I want to come back to that. But before we do, I just want to. Uh, ask so the NHS was was the probably the biggest single system that was hit that was hit by this ransomware attack, uh, but it wasn't the only one. Can you tell us a little bit about who else was affected by this? So you had the one of the concerns was that come Monday morning this attack was going to go even wider um, as more people returned to their offices and booted up their systems. It seems to have been largely contained in some areas uh, because a young 20, like early 20s um, employee identi identified the, uh, basically like the, the built-in kill switch for the tool and was able to sort of shut down a, a big part of the, of the network. So one of the, so basically what the ransomware linked back to in order to run its, um, its ransoming operation, that got shut off. So that was quite helpful. However, if I'm behind the hack, I can simply migrate my system and point it to a different um, server base and keep running the same exploitation all over again. Uh, countries, though, that were much more broadly affected were largely in China. Um, the interesting thing that we've seen from those reports is that apparently both in the private sector and government sector, people are really fond of bootlegging their software. 
So that meant that a lot of their a lot of their systems were much more vulnerable because again, if you're not paying for it, you might be getting more than what you're not paying for with that bootleg edition. So uh, we saw we saw basically a, a bigger spread in China than was expected, and much less than what we thought there would be in the U.S. and other countries. So, Caitlin, I want to take a couple steps back. Um, who is to blame for this? Who created the program in the first place? Who was responsible for kind of spreading it out across the, you know, globally? And um, presumably one of the reasons that, you know, XP is particularly vulnerable in large institutions because they're the last people who are going to spend the money to upgrade their systems unless they absolutely have to. Um, you know, more on like a policy level, and this is kind of a whole separate question, but on a policy level, does government play a role in needing to force institutions, particularly government-run ones, to up to make sure that they're up to date on their antivirus software and their operating systems, you know, to at least, you can't, you know, get rid of the threat, but you can at least limit it? Definitely. So the, one of the things about the way this attack um, was set up in the first place. So about uh, sometime, at one point last year, we saw a major leak come out. Um, so this was the uh, Shadow Brokers uh, hacker group. We do not necessarily know who the Shadow Brokers are right now. Um, and attributing any of these attacks is often very hard. We could also be looking at an, at uh, an attacker or hacker collective um, it could be a collective that is state-sponsored, but not necessarily state-run. Um, I assume it. it on, we is, assume it's a four hundred pound man yeah. in the basement. The guy the who weighs yeah. four hundred pounds. All hacks ultimately <laughs> go back to someone who weighs four hundred pounds. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to get partisan this early, but considering how much um, Baron Trump is supposed to be able to do with computers, I'm not ruling him out. Uh, apparently, he's quite good with them. So yeah. I thought he was just saying. Do we know where Baron was on wrong. Friday? That's right. What were the? We must know where was Baron Trump when all this went down. Get me a list of everyone who weighs more than four hundred pounds and get Baron Trump under surveillance immediately. We'll crack exactly. this thing by lunchtime. Precisely. Um, so, what one of the things about how this um, went down, though, is that it was using a tool uh, known as uh, so the, the shadow broker is basically you know the concept of ransomware is really popular. There's a lot of different ways that you can um, you can literally go onto the dark net and purchase this. It is now software as a service. I can pay for it and deploy it the same way that I can pay for and deploy um, a mass email update system or a podcast. It's very, very simple. Um, what's unique is that the vulnerability it used uh, was stolen from the NSA. That's what the shadow brokers did. So they basically, they hacked the NSA, got this information out, and demonstrated that there was this core vulnerability, what's called a zero-day exploit, in the Windows XP system. So what you want to see is, like, the concept of the ransomware itself is sort of incidental. You want to think about that as, like, a, you know, a tire iron that you're going to use to break through a car window, okay? Um, what's much more interesting is that this, uh, this vulnerability that the NSA had essentially been hoarding. Um, and this is standard practice. They collect these vulnerabilities known as zero-day exploits, which means to date, nobody knows um, that, the, that the vulnerability exists and it hasn't been patched. And when that information got loose, 
this was when we essentially realized, okay, we've got a really big problem. Um, and not only that, but the vehicle that the NSA was using to use this exploit, um, because they've been using some, they use these as backdoors into systems so that they can gain access and conduct remote surveillance all over the world. Um, so that, that really sort of demonstrated the power that this was going to have. And as soon as it was brought to light by shadow brokers, it, it was essentially just a matter of time as to whether or not uh, this kind of attack was going to take place. So in some ways, uh, I think it's a very worth asking, should the NSA be holding on to these kinds of vulnerabilities for as long as they are? Um, what's, you know, should we be having a much more, a much bigger and more public conversation about the government's protocols for releasing, for actually saying, hey, we know this vulnerability exists. It's time for it to be for it to be patched because the potential impact on civilians is too high. It's too high to justify, um, you know, against the intelligence capability. And there actually is a formal process for this. So the process, um, the shorthand for it is VEP, um, which stands for the Vulnerabilities Equities Process. It it came into being on under the Obama administration. We don't know a whole lot about how it works, though. Um, what we do know is posted by um, in a document that was FOIA'd successfully by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I'll actually shoot that link out to you guys on the Taking Ship uh, Twitter, ha Twitter handle after the show. Um, and what it shows is a little bit about how the government decides what to release and what, what to keep hold of, but it's still doesn't tell us a whole lot about how it works. And if I'm looking at it from the position of, say, Brad Smith at Microsoft, I would say this isn't cutting it. I still don't know or I still don't have much confidence that I'm getting the information I need in the time that I need it in order to deploy a, a large enough response. Because keep, keep in mind, Microsoft stops supporting and providing wide-scale security patches to these old systems after a certain point. Um, they simply say, look, you have to simply upgrade um, or you're gonna be more vulnerable. They may, so Microsoft as a company makes that call much the same way that that NHS panel did. Um, and it's in their market interest to keep doing so because it doesn't make sense to keep having support teams patch systems that are a decade and more old just because people are still using them. Um, they need to move on to their next product. So what Brad Smith is now doing, and I think it's really interesting, um, is not only is he criticizing the stockpiling practices of the NSA and other intelligence services, which by the way includes the GCHQ in Britain, um, what he's actually doing is going a step further. He has called for a fifth Geneva Convention that essentially will help to answer some of the core questions about cyber attacks and the use of them in the digital age. And say, look, you know, governments, if you're going to be conducting this, if you're going to be using and building these uh, these major tools for you know for for all these different types of cyber exploitations, you then have to be responsible for their existence in the world. So, no NSA, just because you got hacked doesn't get you off the hook for having created the cyber equivalent of like a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, that is something that you have to own. And if you and we don't currently have 
legal systems um, or any kind of tracking process that's in any way that's in any way publicly scrutinized for how to like monitor these things. Whereas with other types of weapons, we've got sanctions regimes, we've got invest like we've got all these different investigators and oversight committees. There's a whole apparatus for how we track what we build and what can potentially get out into the world. Uh, none of that exists with cyber today. Let's talk about this, uh, the, the next Geneva Convention, uh, this, this idea of a, that, that uh, Brad Smith from Microsoft is pushing. Uh, is this an idea that has a lot of popularity or traction? Is this, I mean, what, what is your sense of its reception and the likelihood that, first of all, is it a good idea and is it likely to happen? Um, I would argue, so from my perch with the Signal program at Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, we do think it's a good idea. Um, we think that uh, this is basically what attacks like this are demonstrating is that we do not have the fundamental legal framework for how to cope with very, very central questions. Um, so, for example, one of the things that the Geneva Conventions help to uh, break down is who qualifies as a civilian, who's a combatant. Well, in the modern era, uh, in the information age, you know, you, Frank, in some capacities are a civilian, right? You aren't a member of a military. Um, but if you're part of a group like the Shadow Brokers, does that make you a combatant? These are open questions. And it's right now, those questions also illustrate that we don't understand whether access to information, especially information in a crisis, so if that crisis is, hey, <laughs> I'm bleeding from a stab wound um, that I incurred during my baking competition, um, do I have Which a is where right, most stab wounds human right, to be, right? Do I have a do do I have a right to be able to um, to be able to access or transmit critical information that I've already saved about myself to my doctor so they can save my life? Now that is the very definition of a crisis. And we don't know whether the right you already have to medical care is confirmed or actually subverted by the fact that right now there's not a whole lot of clarity about whether, um, whether your right to information even exists in that instance. So we think that we literally need to go all the way back to that stage and build out um, essentially an updated uh, Geneva Convention that can answer these questions and patch what remains unfixed um, from the previous ones from the 20th century. All right, so Caitlin, kind of to bring this all back around and considering we're all now, you know, threats of mass destruction with our computers, what are the practical steps that you were, you're advising people to be taking to kind of limit the, their vulnerabilities? Well, the first one is the one that is actually the most obvious. Um, when you get that little box that says, hey, there's an update to your system, do you want to install it? The answer needs to be yes. Um, this is something that every individual really does have a responsibility to do. And it's not because you are, you know, it's not necessarily because it's your job to update your system, but it is because you have a responsibility for keeping the data that's under your control secure. Um, you would understand as, you know, if I'm working with a client who, and we're using health data on patients, I understand even if I'm a contractor for that client, I still have a core responsibility to protect that patient data, right? Because if somebody else were to access it, 
I would have allowed them to get access to something sensitive that could be used to disclose that patient's um, disease status, um, that could even just be used to access their personal information, their insurance information, anything else that can disrupt their, li their lives. Now, I understand that if, say, I had a notebook full of that and I left that information on, say, like a cafe table, I could probably be sued for having done that if somebody came, picked it up, and then used it against other people. We need to take that same attitude towards our digital data. Um, so that's the first thing. At a company level or at an institutional level, it also needs to be understood that the time required to do these updates needs to be paid for. People shouldn't be staying late or penalized for not doing something that they weren't given enough time to do in the first place. And yes, upgrading your systems does take some time, especially when it's something as big as a operating system upgrade. That means you have to shut down everything you're currently work on, working on, download the update, and then process it all again, and then get reset up. If I'm doing that on an average workday, that'll eat you know easily an hour or more, depending on how much I've got open um, and how extensive the update actually is. So you need to be prepared and sort of have a company culture of security that rewards people for doing that and doesn't get growly um, when somebody's standing around with a cup of coffee waiting for their system to update. The next thing that people need to be doing is thinking about uh, what kind of other systems they should be using for their data. So some of these have been talked about a lot, but definitely need to be incentivized at both the government and the private sector levels. Because um, ultimately, if you really want me to do something, pay me in some way. Create some kind of reward or incentive structure. Um, and that includes when it comes to traveling with our data, we need to be taking the next steps and thinking about how we're sort of compartmentalizing and protecting the most sensitive things that we have so that they're not vulnerable to this type of attack. Um, now, again, this can get much, much more complicated, but at a basic level, you want to think about, okay, how do I protect the data I've already got? Am I keeping my system up to date? Two, how am I protecting myself against all those little intrusions? What am I likely to be using? Do I have solid passwords? Am I using two-factor authentication? Every time I use those types of tools, I'm making it harder for somebody to sneak a virus into my system. And third, what do you know to to give permission to. Sophisticated phishing attacks are really becoming quite popular. Um, and we saw a massive phishing attack go through just before this ransomware attack came out. I'm not saying that they are related, um, but in terms of our overall security, you need to know that if you get something from a colleague um, that you weren't expecting and it tells you to download a file or any kind of document or click on a link, your first reaction should be, wait a second. I don't know what this is. If you weren't already expecting it, you need to treat those things with suspicion um, and take the time to follow up and say, just go tap that colleague on the shoulder, give them a call uh, and see if they actually meant to send that document. Um, that's often one of the best ways to protect yourself from any kind of attack that will introduce that kind of virus into your system. Because the best ones, the Trojan horses, um, not only will they enter, but they will then patch themselves behind and sort of shut the door behind them so that you can't detect that they were ever in your system in the first place. So if I'm running an antivirus software on my computer, it might not even know that the virus is now in there. Um, there was a version of that was actually used in the Stuxnet attack 
uh, and it's, it's a pretty sophisticated tool, but these sophisticated tools are becoming more and more affordable by the day. So what I'm hearing is in order to protect ourselves, we should ignore all of our colleagues' emails. I like this. This is a great idea. Thank you, Caitlin Howard. That is, you, you've made my life so much better and so much easier. Ignore all the emails, people, and no one can ever harm you. Yeah, we can get behind that. We can That's get behind definitely that. my policy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and a, and a, if you yeah, really cared about me getting that information, you would hunt me down. That's exactly me right. Face. Saner policies for a happier America. Uh, and so with that, we turn now to, uh, we, we thank you for your expertise and your insights. We turn now to a different type of expertise and insight with our lightning round. Yeah, these are just quick questions. Um, you know, don't think about them too much. First one is, what's the best book, TV show, movie you've read or seen lately? You can do one of each or just one thing. Uh, well, the most exciting book that I've picked up recently is called Jane Crow. It's a biography of the feminist, transgender, poet, uh, civil rights pioneer, Polly Murray. It's incredible. Um, I think the book, it doesn't necessarily do all of her life justice, but then I'm still only in the first couple hundred pages uh, and very excited to see more. Um, I also cannot wait to watch the next season of... Um, Oh, what is it? It's a Zizansari's show on Netflix. Master of None. Uh, Master of None. Yes, I can't wait. I was just listening to uh, to one of the writers, Alan Yang, talking about creating the for creating the show, and I can't wait to get in on it. Um, as for podcasts, if I'm not listening to Taking Ship, which I do every every week and every episode, um, I'm thank you, personally Caitlin, and thank you to the other person who does that. <laughs> um, I'm also really excited by the podcast called Nancy. Um, it's produced by WNYC, uh, and it talks not just about um, being LGBTQ, but it talks about the range of experiences um, across that community, uh, especially for people of color. And it's incredibly funny. The two co-hosts are best friends, and you can tell from the from the banter they have. Um, and it's talking about really important issues, including how we're continuing to handle or not handle the HIV and AIDS crisis today. So all good things Great. to check out. Uh, all right, second question, uh, favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, that would be a French 75, uh, done, made correctly, which is not too heavy on the gin. We are getting some good picks lately, Frank. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping a list. I don't know the French seventy-five. That is a. I mean, that is an absolute classic. Yeah, strong choice. All right. The third question is: uh, In the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something, contributing to something, volunteering for something, donating money to something. What's an organization you're supporting, and why? Great question. Um, right now, the main organization I'm giving my measly five bucks a month to is the Wikimedia Foundation. Um, one because it's run currently by the brilliant Catherine Marr, who is, understands from firsthand experience how important access to information is all around the world, um, and also because they are very much at the front lines of information access and education um, in a lot of repressive regimes. So they're the ones who are bringing this fight um, and fighting the good fight in places like Turkey, where uh, getting what you need, knowing what you need to know about your government and your country is increasingly difficult. And where can people follow you online, Caitlin? 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my my handle is Caitlin Howard. It's really really complicated, guys. I was being super inventive with that handle. Um, and you can also find my company, All in Our Consulting, at All in Our Co. All right. Terrific. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. This has been terrific. We'll definitely have you on again to talk cyber and other stuff sometime in the, in the near future. Thank you very, very much. Don't worry. I'll be seeing you guys soon after I hack the rest of your systems. Don't go into that other folder. <laughs> and with that, with that creepy, and with that creepy door noise, we will officially end the interview. Thank you, Caitlin. That is our show for the week. Thanks for joining us, and thank you, Caitlin, for taking the time to join us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in pandation. And if you're so willing, you can join the Taking Ship Challenge and get two of your friends to subscribe this week. Uh, subscribers count, ratings count. Please take the time to do both. With that, Frank, where are we headed? This week, we take ship for the Netherlands. Normally, we decline any opportunity to consort with the perfidious Dutch. Goddamn preferring, Dutch. Yes, to, we prefer to resist their machinations at every turn. Uh, but this week, it transpired that uh, King Willem Alexander, the monarch of the Netherlands, has been moonlighting as a co-pilot on commercial flights for KLM's regional subsidiary for 20 years and continues to do so. So, uh, we here at Taking Ship are very much in favor of ruling monarchs having clandestine second careers and would like to offer him the opportunity to uh, take the wheel at Taking Ship for a while. Uh, the good ship Taking Ship, she's a, a good ship, weatherly, she sails best on a bowline, and uh, is crewed by a proper set of seafaring pedants who are more often three sheets to the wind than the vessel itself. Uh, it'll be the finest Dutch naval expedition since they burnt the London docks, and that was a rip-roaring good time. So, friends, we take ship now for the Netherlands. Take care, everybody.